I've, uh, I've rarely been thankful uh, for a smaller sized congregation than I am uh, this week and probably the next couple weeks. So uh, it does have its benefits, which is pretty awesome. Um, this season of the year, Lent, is a gentle reminder that God has placed on us that uh, sin is a difficult, difficult complication to our lives. Last week we saw how death itself is very unnatural. Even though we experience it, it is unnatural. It is not how God designed us. We were designed to live in perfect harmony with him and with one another. And death is just that painful reminder that things are not right with the world. And obviously over the past couple of weeks we've noticed things are not right with the world. Death is just simply one of those things. Panic, fear, worry, anxiety, uncertainty are other things that are wrong with the world. And God did not design us to experience that. He did not design us in mind going, oh, I can't wait until they figure out this thing called worry. He didn't design us to figure out this thing called fear. He didn't design us to figure out this thing called panic. He wanted us to live in harmony with him, experiencing that joy and that comfort and that love that surrounded us when Adam and Eve were first created. But sin entered the world and changed things. And it's made humans throughout history ask that question, what are humans? Who are we? What is our role in the universe? Why are we here? Why do we suffer? Why do we die? Is this all there is to life? Are we just merely animals who just simply think better than other animals or are more ingenious and creative with our language and our ability to form communities? Is that why we're different? And philosophers have asked that question and people constantly wonder to themselves, why am I here? And what makes me different than the rest of creation, the rest of animals? And it has led to very dangerous, false ideas that we're just a higher evolved type of animal. But our DNA is so close to chimpanzees, we must be related to them somewhere down the family tree of evolution. And I can't imagine anything more humiliating to God than for his prized creation to think that they're merely animals. Despite what you might see on some videos, we are not animals. God has uniquely created us. And in Genesis, the very first chapter, he tells us that he created us as mankind, male and female, after his own image. So God, when he created us, and Ephesians chapter 4 tells us even more about this image, that it's holiness and righteousness, that when God made humans, he made them uniquely and different than all of creation. The rest of creation, if you read the stories in Genesis 1 and 2, says God spoke and it happened. God said, let there be light and there was light. He said, let there be land, there was land. Let there be fish, there were fish. Birds, birds. Animals, animals. Trees, trees. Flowers, flowers. Vegetation, vegetation. Stars and moons, they just simply came into existence 
And theology has this phrase called ex nihilo, which in Latin means out of nothing. And God spoke it, and it happened. But with humans, God did something very unique when he created us. It says he took us and formed us out of the dust with his hands. He didn't do that with the chimpanzees. He didn't do that with the mountains. He didn't do that with the stars or the moons or any other part of creation that we see and experience, but us. From the very, very beginning, he breathed life into us. He didn't breathe life into animals. He breathed life into us, bestowing upon us this gift called, what we might call, a spirit or a soul or what makes us human. What makes us human is not language. It's not our ability to create a society or a culture. It's not our ability with imposable thumbs that we can use tools. No. What makes us human is that God has bestowed upon us a soul. And he says that soul in Ephesians 4 is something called holiness and righteousness. That we have an understanding of holiness and righteousness, of right and wrong. Even though that's been changed through the fall... And some people have a very hard conscience and don't accept right, don't accept wrong. In fact, they twist it, and Paul tells us in Romans 1 that they call what's good wrong and what's wrong good. But in our very natures, as physical beings and spiritual beings, God has made us uniquely adapted to relate to him. Sin has broken that, and so we call this a broken image or a fallen image. It's not exactly what it needs to be. But our image is like a mirror. And uh, everyone used a mirror this morning. I think of only one person that hasn't. But that's okay. I'm not naming names. Actually, now I see two people that probably didn't use a mirror. No problem. But what is a mirror designed to do? Gives a reflection, right? It reflects who you are in front of it. Have you ever been in one of those, like, fun houses where the mirrors are absolutely, I am not that heavy. Uh, my middle is not that big, but the mirror makes it look that way. In fact, I think most of the mirrors in my house might be kind of those funny mirrors. But a mirror reflects what's in front of it. But when the mirror is broken or it's a funny mirror, it doesn't really give an accurate reflection. It's distorted, and if the mirror's broken, it gives a broken image, and it can be rather confusing, and it looks rather sometimes silly. The human nature, when God created us, he created us to mirror and reflect his holiness and his righteousness. That's what it means to be made in his image. We're to reflect his character. When we fell, that image was broken. It was distorted, it was marred, it was shattered. And so humans don't rightly reflect God's holiness and his righteousness. And we're told in Romans chapter 5, and let me just turn there, all of these verses are there in, in your handout, but in Romans 5, verse 17, if I can turn there real quick, it says, For by the trespass of one man, one man, Death reigned through that one man. So it's talking about the fall. When, when the fall came, death came. And so that broken image came. That marred reflection came. 
that inability to reflect God's holiness and his righteousness is now part of us. We, we, we're not reflecting his character as we should. And part of that reflection is death itself. It says, so through the trespasses of one man, death reigned through that one man. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So even though we have fallen, Paul says there's something even more amazing than that. It can be fixed. Through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that broken image can be restored. And now we may look around and go, wow, <laughs> it's not really doing a great job right now because we, we still feel the effects of sin and the effects of being broken before God. We feel the effects of not perfectly reflecting God's holiness and his righteousness. None of us perfectly reflect God's righteousness and holiness. It's a process that scripture calls sanctification. We are slowly over time being refined. Slowly over time, you can imagine the mirror being fixed. Slowly over time, that smudge is being removed. Slowly over time, the streaks are being cleansed. Slowly over time, it's going to become a perfect reflection again of God's holiness and righteousness. And heaven is going to be adorned with millions upon millions of perfectly reflecting humans of God's righteousness and holiness. That's our hope. That's our future. That's our destiny. That's our outcome. And Psalm 8 that we're going to look at really, I think, is a beautiful picture of putting this into perspective. Because in Psalm 8, David writes this psalm, and he starts out with this great declaration of how mankind is situated in this universe and what that means. And he starts out by saying in, in Psalm chapter 8, Lord our Lord, or Jehovah, Yahweh, the official name of God, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He doesn't have to argue that God's name is majestic. He's not arguing, he's not going to give us now logical points of why we can consider God's name as majestic, why we consider him Lord, the state, it's a stated fact. God is majestic, which means he is a reflected beauty of goodness. That's what majestic means, reflected beauty and goodness. So God is this. And what David says next is that we have a response to this. You have set your glory in the heavens. We see him every day. I have mentioned this, and I will mention this until the end of time. That stopping for a moment and looking up at the stars at night or looking at the sky during the day or looking out the window and seeing God's creation is a beautiful privilege that we have. Not just because God has outdone himself in Colorado, but I'm talking no matter where you live, the blueness of the sky and the whiteness of a cloud and the brilliance of the sun and the amazing way in which these little lights peer through the night dark sky is a declaration to all of creation and to us as humans that there is someone really powerful at work 
And that power is not called chance. His name is Jehovah God. And every point of this creation signs his name, mine. And our feeble minds and eyes, covered by sin, broken by sin, marred by sin, marked by sin, loves to distort that fact. We love to say it's by chance, it's random, it's natural occurring things. Who put the natural occurring things in their order? God did. And so David starts out the psalm by saying, let's, let's just make sure that we're on the same page here. God is majestic. He is beautiful and good in every reflection that he has. And his glory is in the heavens. So when we consider nature, when we think, here's a great tool. When we feel like the world is on fire and going to hell in a handbasket, and you get tempted to maybe follow them for a moment out of fear, I think one of the greatest things to do is to stop and to look up. Not that looking up is the key. Maybe you want to look down because if you have ever spent any time staring at grass, and I'm not talking, okay, let me rephrase that. I'm talking real grass, real dirt, uh, well, a flower, okay, a pebble. It doesn't matter what you hold in your hand. You can look down, you can look up, you can look to the sides and take a moment and realize what God has placed around us crunching under our feet is amazing. And when you stop and consider God's creation and his handiwork and his name that he's placed upon every atom in this world, you begin to realize, I think I'm going to be okay. I think I'm going to be okay even if I'm taken from this life. I'm going to be okay. And he continues and not only tells us that the Lord is majestic and he set his glory in the heavens. He says in verse 2, through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When was the last time you saw children and infants being recruited into the military to protect us? Oh, that would be a, that'd be a terrible day in some ways they may be doing a lot better because they always fight about as toys maybe it would be safe but it's a ridiculous thought to think children and infants would be a protection would be a stronghold for us but it's not the children and infants that are the stronghold the protection it is through the praise of children and infants you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger Oftentimes at Christmas, you have children that come up and sing Christmas songs. We had this last year, and it was amazing. If you were here, you remember that? And it probably put a smile on your face like it's putting a smile on your face right now. Why? Not just because the children are cute, or they may do something 
that's noteworthy to put on a video to kind of laugh at. It's because out of the mouth of a simple child, they're declaring praise to God. And it is beautiful to see that witness and testimony in a simple song like Away in a Manger or O Little Town of Bethlehem. It enlivens you. It reminds you that in the simpleness of faith, their love for the Savior is unencumbered by the worries of the world and they can sing praise to God without all the pressures of life surrounding them, making them kind of that grumpy person that reluctantly sings because everybody else is singing. They're just singing because there's joy in their heart over what the Savior means in their life. That's the stronghold. That's the remembrance that our God is this great God of nature and worship. That if children are able to sing forth their praise, so can we. That's a stronghold. Praising God is a stronghold. It is a protection. It is a fortress against the enemy. Now David was talking about real enemies that wanted to kill him. Actually murder him as the king of Israel. We don't have that happening. We have other enemies. Doubt, fear, loneliness, sadness, pride, anger. We have lots of other enemies, spiritual in nature. Maybe David has it right. That singing praises can help us in times like that? It can be a stronghold in times like that? I find it very hard to be mad when I'm singing praises to God. I find it very hard to be mad when I bow my head and say, You, Lord, are my God, my Savior, my trust, my hope. All of a sudden, that wall of anger or frustration or worry it doesn't magically disappear. God just simply wipes that mar off of the mirror of my image and says, no more of that. You're here to praise me. Praise me. He continues in verse 3. David says, when I consider your heavens, when I think about your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of him? human beings that you care about them. There's a, there's a few videos on YouTube that you can watch, and I, I find them fascinating, where they start at the smallest known thing in the universe, which is a plank. It's called a plank. Not an atom or, or electrons and neutrons anymore. There's stuff a lot smaller than that. And the smallest thing they have are planks. And I'm sure there's something even smaller than that. But it goes from the smallest thing, and it kind of through 10 minutes of video, then moves back to the largest things in the universe. I don't know if you've ever seen those kind of videos. There's lots of them. But it really puts in perspective when it starts getting the world, the sun, the solar system, the galaxy, and then the known galaxy, and all of a sudden your mind just goes, but where's Earth? And it's just this mere little dot. In fact, God is too big for it in the scope of the entire universe. And immediately I go, wow. And God knows every hair on my head. God knows every moment of my life. God says, I have taken care of every thought that you have. 
I have taken care of every need that you have. And I go, but look at how vast this is. Look at how big this is. How can I be that important? And it's not because I'm important. It's because God has said, you, I love. I love you. And I've redeemed you. And when I consider how huge this universe is, and yet God loves me with all my faults, with all my frailties, with all my brokenness and mars and smudges. It's a humbling moment. But besides being a humbling moment, I think with David, it's a moment where he takes refuge and says, okay, if God has all of this to manage and does it perfectly, maybe, just maybe, I can trust him with what's going on with this little dot in my life. Maybe, just maybe, he can take care of it. Maybe, just maybe, he can solve it. Maybe, just maybe, he can lead me and guide me through it. When I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, It's almost as if David is looking at the whole of the universe and saying, you know what? It took just a finger of God to do this. Just a finger to accomplish all that you see around you. In fact, it didn't even take a finger. He's talking figuratively because all it did was take God speaking it and it happened. Let there be. And it came forth. There is a lot more to God and his ability, and his power, than sometimes we give him credit for. If David looks at the world around him and says, that's just the finger work of God. You ever see finger painting by kindergartners? Now, if it's your kid doing the finger painting, it's probably the best art you've ever seen in the world. But let's be honest. It's finger painting by a kindergartner in the end doesn't compare to the mountains or a tree or bringing forth life just the finger work of God his finger painting his touch made everything surrounding us so David is humbled realizing that this creator God takes your breath away. And then he says about mankind, humans, you have made them, verse 5, a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. Now what he means by making them a little lower than the angels, uh, angels are only spiritual beings. They were created and they are confirmed in their righteousness or they rebelled against God and they were confirmed in their unrighteousness. And it doesn't need to be a whole nother series of sermons, but that's where I believe demons came from, fallen angels. So um, they are much different in us. They don't get married. They don't need to eat or drink because that's a physical activity, not a spiritual activity. Uh, they're not confined maybe to one space because 
we're defined, confined to one space because we're physical beings made out of real molecules and atoms and cells that can't be in two places at once. But not so with angels. And so, in a sense, angels have a lot more freedom and flexibility than we have in their existence. In fact, they sometimes surround God and just sing glorious praises to him day in and day out. I don't think they experience time like we experience time. So they have some benefits that we have, that we don't have. But they also have some drawbacks that we, that we don't have. One of the major drawbacks is they're not created in his image. They're created beings, but they're not created beings like we are. We are uniquely created in God's image. And the fallen angels have no hope of redemption. Redemption is only a human thing. Only humans are redeemed. All of nature one day will be recreated, new heavens and new earth, and it will be redeemed in that sense. But individual aspects of nature never get redeemed. It's mankind, humans, male and female, that are redeemed. So that's why he says they crowned him with glory and honor. We have that unique spot in all of creation. Even though Scripture records angels as being powerful, mighty powerful they're nothing like us we have a unique role with god that they will never experience and that's why in scripture it tells us that when one individual is brought into his kingdom all of the angels rejoice that god's redemption has been made real in a person it's a glorious thing it is a praiseworthy moment for all of the heavenly beings to rejoice that God is good. We've been given that special place, not angels. It says in verse 6, You also made them rulers of the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks, all herds, all animals of the wild, the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, all that swims of the path of the seas. What David is saying is that mankind, even though maybe a little lower than the angels in their ability and power, yet they're crowned with God's glory and goodness, and they have a responsibility that nothing else has. We are responsible for the world around us. Not for the, the weather patterns, but for everything that God has placed under our authority, we have a responsibility to care for. This may surprise you, but in some little way, I think Christians should be the most environmentally conscious advocates there ever was. Because God gave us creation not to abuse, but to manage for use. And so we should be at the forefront of looking after God's creation. Not to the point where we no longer can ink out of living because one little toad lives in one little spot and we need to protect the toad over mankind but we cannot be abusing creation last week we saw that we are to be gardeners that that is one of god's intended purposes is that we take care of creation and david reiterates that saying we are top dog in creation not because we made it there, or we're smarter than the rest of creation, or we can create weapons. 
It's because God has placed us with that authority. David ends the psalm in verse 9 and says, Lord, our Lord, again, Jehovah Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That psalm is who you are. That psalm describes you. Nowhere in that psalm does it say you need to live in fear. Nowhere in that psalm does it say you need to lead the panic. Nowhere in that psalm does it say you need to fall apart at the, at, at the drop of a hat, at bad news. Nowhere does it say you should freak out in life. In fact, it says quite the opposite. My eyes and my attention should be drawn to this great God whose name is Majestic, who all I have to do is look around creation and remind myself how huge and mighty he is, how small and insignificant I seem, and yet he takes care of me. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus multiple times reminds us that if God takes care of the lilies of the field, the grasses of the earth, the mountains of our ranges, the trees in our forests, the skies, the birds, the animals. If, he got, if God takes care of all of this amazing finger work, will he not take care of you? The crown and jewel of his creation? The answer is yes. And how long will he do that for? Until you run out of supplies? No. He'll do that for you forever and ever and ever. So let's be encouraged. Not that we have to go through a trial or not that we have to go through tough times, but let's be encouraged that as people of the faith that go through these things, we don't have to fear what tomorrow brings. Let's pray. Father, you are mighty indeed. You are indeed Lord of lords and King of kings. You are indeed the creator and stainer of life, and you indeed have redeemed us to bring us life. Help us, Father, in these trials and times of challenge. Help us, Father, not to lose sight of how majestic you are, of how beautiful and good you are. And may we then be an encouragement to others, knowing that they might live in fear. Help us show the world around us that we can conquer fear, not through supplies, but through the God who supplies our every need. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, Amen. So...